Even in that sin-stained history, there are glimpses of something better that is going to come. There are glimpses of a sure-founded hope based not on human will and decision, but based on the goodness and faithfulness and covenant promise-keeping God of Israel. Thank you, Ted. Appreciate that. Good to be together this morning. Good to see you folks here. Uh, I just want to open with a word of prayer. Uh, there's a lot of folks that are not here because they are sick. Uh, some are recovering from surgery. I know we've been praying for them, but just want to lift those folks up to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the opportunity to be together today. We thank you for just the power of being able to worship you and to take the bread and to take the cup and to remember, Jesus, all that you have sacrificed for us. Father, we do want to pray for the folks that are part of this community that are battling sickness, recovering from surgery, uh, who are unable to be with us today. Lord, we just pray that you would continue to extend yourself to them, that you would strengthen them, that you would heal them. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Lord of life. And you bring life from death itself. And you bring healing and strength and encouragement and hope. And we know, Lord Jesus, that it is only in you that we can find these things. So we pray, Lord God, for all of the folks who are part of this congregation that are unable to be with us today. We pray, Lord God, that you would speak your word of healing and speak your word of life into each one of them. And that they would be greatly encouraged, in spite of what they are battling, that they would be greatly encouraged in you, Lord Jesus. And finally, Father, we want to thank you so much for the privilege of being able to read your word, to study your word, to consider your word, to talk about your word. Father, the Bible is your word to us. And we pray now that you would open all of our ears to hear what it is that you are saying to us. We are grateful, Lord God, to you that you have preserved the books of Scripture for us. And we pray now, Lord, that we would come closer to you, understand you better, understand your ways better, particularly as we look at the book of 1 Chronicles. Lord, help us to understand your history and what you want us to learn from what you have done in history. So again, Lord Jesus, we are just grateful to you for all that you've done. And it is in your name and your name alone that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, as Ted shared, in a moment we're going to be getting into the book of First Chronicles. Uh, we have been reading that together as a congregation, and we will spend some time together this morning uh, looking at the book of First Chronicles. But before we do that, I did just want to thank you all for sending me to Iquitos, Peru. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for the encouragement. Uh, thank you for making that trip possible. Uh, just a quick summary. For those of you who don't know, Iquitos is a fairly large city, about 700,000, uh, right in the heart of the Amazon jungle in basically northeast Peru. Many, many, many years ago, we sent Bill Pepper out from this congregation who started a work in the Amazon jungle and that work continues to this day, and that is who I was working with while I was there. Iquitos, actually, you can only reach it by boat or by plane. There are no roads into Iquitos, but even though you are fairly isolated, because the city is so large, you don't really feel isolated once you are there. Um, it's right on the Amazon River, and there are two other rivers that form the boundaries of the city, uh, the Nanai River and the Ataya River. So there is water all around, and boats are a normal way of getting around if you are leaving the city in any one of those directions. Um, in terms of my time there, we tried something a little different this time. Usually when I go to teach at the Bible school, uh, I usually teach a week. Uh, this time David Pepper suggested that I try doing two weeks. Uh, I was a little, little hesitant. I thought that might end up being too much. 
but the way that uh, the director of the Bible school structured the time there, I think two weeks actually worked really, really well. Um, this is a Bible school that basically is a two-year Bible school, and they have a pattern where students are in the classroom for three months, and then they are sent out to do practical ministry for three months. And then they come back and have three more months in the classroom, and then they are sent out. And they repeat that cycle four times. So there's four six-month cycles, three months in the classroom, three months doing practical ministry. So at the end, it is a two-year program. In the past, when I've taught at the Bible school, I've actually usually taught the entire school together. So you have the students who are just starting along with the students who are about to graduate and everyone in between. But because I was able to be there a little longer this time, Hermana Diana actually divided up the, the school into their classes. And so for each of the classes I was teaching, I was dealing with only one of the four cycles. And I think that actually worked a lot better uh, because the cycle one, the students who were just starting, by the time I had gotten there, they'd only been there a week. Uh, this new semester had started a week before I got there. So I was actually teaching as part of the second and third weeks. And you could tell, I mean, they, they were young and a lot of the truths of the gospel, a lot of the things of the word of God, they had just never, ever been exposed to. And it was so exciting just to be able to introduce them to some really, really basic principles of our faith. I uh, had an opportunity just to talk about how the New Testament is put together. I uh, had an opportunity to talk about the Trinity, the incarnation, uh, the kingdom of God, uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So some really, really, you know, just exciting things. And just to kind of realize, wow, these, these uh, students are, are so young and so fresh, and there's so much that lies ahead of them. And then for the, the, the other cycles, cycles three and cycle four, of course, cycle four, they were just a couple months from finishing. We were able to dive into some, some deeper things. And actually what uh, the director, Amana Diana, had asked me to teach on was hermeneutics and homiletics. Um, and for those of you who don't know what that is, that's totally fine. I had to look it up myself uh, just to make sure I knew what it was. And I was pursuing a PhD in hermeneutics quite a few years ago. Um, but simply put, it's basically how do we interpret the scriptures and how do we teach and preach the scriptures? That's basically what it is. And so what a privilege really to be able to try to pour into these uh, students who are a little bit further along, who are a little bit closer to finishing. And definitely you could see the cycle four students, they were feeling a little, you know, trepidation that in a couple months they were going to be done, weren't necessarily sure what was coming next, um, but what a, what a blessing. And as I say every time, you know, it was just an incredible blessing for me, you know, to be there, just to see what the Lord is doing, uh, to see these, these young uh, although there were some older students as well, but, but predominantly younger students just hungry for the Lord, hungry for his word, uh, desiring to be trained, desiring to know God better, uh, desiring to be equipped for ministry, and then really just presenting themselves to the Lord and saying, Lord, you know, wherever you want to send me, whatever you want me to do, here I am, I'm available. So what an incredible, incredible blessing for me. Uh, also, just while I was there, had the opportunity to preach in quite a few different church services. And, and again, that's another just incredible gift for me, just to be with Peruvian believers as they gather for their worship and time together as sisters and brothers in Christ. Always felt incredibly welcomed, always felt incredibly at home. Uh, certainly didn't understand a lot of the songs that they were singing. Uh, every now and then I could catch phrases and catch words, but, you know, because of the volume and because of how quickly they sing some of the songs, didn't, didn't quite catch it all, but you could obviously just sense, you know, the presence of the Spirit. You could sense just Him there and moving. And saw very, you know, different types of churches. Um, was able to go back and visit one of the churches who lost their senior pastor to COVID, I think a lot of you are aware that Mepi Mission actually lost quite a few pastors during the COVID pandemic, so was able to go back to that church. They're doing well. Uh, the joy of the Lord is present. Uh, they are persevering. Uh, they had a crisis with their building that the Lord just incredibly resolved. Uh, the city of Iquitos was actually raising the street that they were on by, I think, about like eight feet, 
And so their front door was going to basically only have like a two-foot gap to get into their building. And they were able to raise up their entire building. And now they're once again at street level. And they weren't sure when I was there a year ago, they weren't sure how that was going to work out. But the Lord worked it out. And they were so excited. And I was so excited, you know, just to see how the Lord preserved them in the building that they're in. I uh, got a chance to visit a church I'd never been to before. I uh, got a chance to visit some other churches I've been to in the past. But just an incredible, incredible blessing. And of course, all of the reports that we're hearing, you know, the gospel continues to advance. You know, they are certainly in Iquitos, but they are preaching the gospel beyond the city limits. They have teams all over the Peruvian jungle. They also have works that are going on in Paraguay. Uh, there's a picture of the Paraguay flag there because they're doing some work in Paraguay, but also into Brazil. Um, in fact, there were four students at the Bible school that had come there from Brazil. So what a blessing to be able to teach them as well. But they really have a heart to go into regions where the gospel has not been preached and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And almost everywhere they go, they see a significant response and enough of a response that usually a congregation is started. And then, of course, they bring in a building team a little bit later to construct either a simple wood church or sometimes a more permanent concrete church. Uh, they have well digging, well digging ministries. Uh, they have clinics for health. Um, they also do all sorts of evangelism and outreach for kids. So just an incredibly, you know, vibrant and dynamic ministry. And, you know, for me to be able to be there for a couple of weeks, I just consider it a blessing. Definitely a blessing. So thank you all for your prayers. Greatly, greatly appreciated. Um, really, really sense that I never had to worry about my voice. I was a little concerned that, you know, as much as I was speaking and as loudly as I was speaking, that I would probably lose my voice, but I never did. You know, I guess the Lord still had something more to say through me. But, you know, whenever he's done, we're done, right? So we just trust him and trust that he gives us the grace to do what he asks us to do. Um, the gentleman who translates for me, his name is Freddie, just a phenomenal brother in Christ. Um, he's been translating for me now quite a few years, and so a real friendship has formed. And you really just get the sense that, you know, when we're up there, we're really ministering together as a team. It isn't just, you know, me teaching and him translating, but really together we are presenting the Word of God, you know, to the students or to the congregations. And so just an incredible, incredible blessing um, to be able to work with him. So anyways, of course, if you have any more questions, feel free to approach me afterwards. would love to answer any questions you have. But again, I just want to thank you because there is very, very clearly the sense, you know, that when I go, you know, you folks are sending me. You know, that is very, very clearly how I go on any of these trips that the Lord opens for me. You know, I go with you as my home congregation, you know, sending me. And so thank you for that. Really, really makes a huge difference. So let's transition a little bit into the book of First Chronicles. Now, as we mentioned before, this is the book that we have been working our way through as a congregation. How many of you have been reading through First Chronicles? So some people have. How many of you kind of got stuck with the first 10 chapters or nine chapters of, of genealogies? Little, little, little challenging maybe for us as modern readers to get through that, but don't worry. There's a lot more lists of names coming later in the book. So if you felt like at chapter 9, you know, you had turned a corner in terms of the style of reporting history that the chronicler had given us, there's a lot more list of names. And so we need to kind of take a step back and just ask, you know, why, why is the book of Chronicles in our Bible? You know, it's important for us to ask the Lord that question for all 66 books. You know, the Lord doesn't make mistakes. The Lord absolutely knows what he's doing. So he has included these 66 books. No more, no less. Now, as modern readers, when we are reading certain se sections of Scripture, we may kind of ask ourselves, well, Lord, you know, why, why is this in here? You know, not long ago we read the book of Leviticus, which initially through the first seven chapters, you know, goes into great detail about how specific animals and wine and grain and oil were to be sacrificed to the Lord. And so maybe we were asking ourselves the question, you know, why, why does that continue to be part of our Bible? Why is that part of the eternal word of God? Well, certainly when we get to Chronicles, you know, we may be asking the same sort of questions. And again, I think as we take a step back, 
you know, one of the most helpful things that we can let the Lord remind us of is that he does know what he's doing. He does know what he's doing. And so whatever he has included in his eternal word for us is there on purpose. It's not there by accident. It's there on purpose. And we need to do everything we can to try to understand why certain things are in the scripture. Why are there extensive genealogies in the Old Testament? Why are there extensive lists of names in the Old Testament? You know, these are questions that we need to ask ourselves. But one of the things that we see, we don't know for sure who the human author of Chronicles was. We know that it was a single volume. It was divided simply because of length. In the ancient world, they didn't really have books like this till quite a bit later. So written material were actually on scrolls and you would have basically like a pole and that would roll the scroll one way and then you'd have another stick or pole and that would roll the scroll the other way. So you'd kind of move the, the poles together and that would move the text in front of you. That was basically how written materials were stored and written down for centuries. So the idea of a book was not really something that was initially present in the ancient world. And so after a while, you know, the scroll would get really, really, really thick and there was only so much you could put on a single scroll. So the book of Chronicles was long enough that oftentimes it was divided. But it's clear that First and Second Chronicles is intended to be a single work, certainly most likely by a single human author. Now, again, as I mentioned, we don't know for sure who the human author was, but from what the Spirit inspired him to record for us, we do understand a little bit about what his purpose in writing this history for us was. You know, it's interesting because Chronicles actually goes all the way back to the very beginning. The first word of the book of First Chronicles is Adam. Adam. So the chronicler is not just giving us a history beginning with David as king, but the chronicler is actually going all the way back to the very, very beginning. He starts with Adam. And so as we're reading First and Second Chronicles, it isn't just a history of the kings of Judah, but in fact, it is a history of the entirety of humanity, beginning all the way with Adam. Now, as we see, instead of telling us a lot of stories between Adam until he finally gets to Saul, he just gives us names. He gives us names. That's how he recounts the goodness and the faithfulness of God. You know, if you want to understand the Old Testament, there's two very, very central, simple themes to understanding the Old Testament. People and land. We see that from the very, very beginning, Genesis 1, all the way through and ultimately concluded in the book of Revelation, chapter 22. But if you want to begin to try to understand the Old Testament, two incredibly repeated central themes are the themes of people and land. God is absolutely determined to create a people for himself, and he is absolutely determined to create a land for them to live in. So as we're reading all of the names of Chronicles, all of the genealogies, you know, what hopefully at least in part is resonating in us is God fulfilled his promise. God fulfilled his promise and he in fact created a people for himself. We may even think when we see the name Abraham, in those genealogies. We may even think of the promise that God made to him. You know, you will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the sea. And so as we're reading those names, and of course a lot of the names are difficult for us to pronounce, and we can certainly get a little distracted or a little bit bogged down, but hopefully part of what is resonating in us as we are reading those names is the faithfulness of God. God, in all of those names, is declaring that I have, in fact, created a people for myself. I have, in fact, called to myself, not just individuals, but entire nation 
unto myself. What I have declared, I have done. Now the chronicler is, is absolutely aware that there is already a recounting of that history. So part of why he doesn't simply rehash all of the stories of Genesis and Exodus and Joshua and Judges is because he knows that these accounts have already been written down. And so he is kind of giving us that different perspective of the genealogi genealogical list of names. But as we see some of those names, hopefully that incredible truth resonates with us, that God has created for himself a people. He has fulfilled his promise. Another thing that we need to recognize is that the chronicler is picking specific aspects of history to emphasize. He is picking specific aspects of history to emphasize. He's being incredibly selective. And again, initially, we may think that's a little bit inappropriate or not necessarily being a good historian. But what we need to remember is that the Word of God is God telling us His history, His story, in the way that He chooses to. And we're very, very comfortable and we're very, very familiar with this in the New Testament because we have four different accounts of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. And of course, we hopefully all remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Spirit of God inspired four different human authors to record the events of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection. And even though a lot of similar ground is covered in those Gospels, each one is kind of giving us some different things to consider about the same events, the same teachings, the same miracles, but each one is giving us a little bit different emphasis, a little bit different application. Now, of course, folks who are skeptical or critical of the Bible say they're, you know, the Gospels are full of contradictions, they're full of human mistakes. But for those of us who accept the Bible as the Word of God, what we see is an incredible depth, an incredible depth that actually is a blessing. You know, again, God intentionally gave us four different accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. He could have just given us Matthew, or just John, or just Luke, but instead he chose to give us all four. Not so that we would get all concerned about apparent contradictions or tensions between the various accounts, but so that there would be a, a greater depth in understanding not only what Jesus did and taught, but what it means for us, what it means for us. So when we go back to the book of Chronicles, the chronicler is doing the same thing. He is aware that there is a written record of all of the things that he is writing about. In fact, at the end of Chronicles, he makes reference to some of his sources. Now, most of these sources are lost to us. It isn't just Samuel Kings that he's referring to. He's referring to other written records of the history of Israel that we do not have. So he isn't just rehashing, retelling the same stories. He's doing it with an incredibly God-driven, Holy Spirit-inspired intention. Now, as we have been reading through First Chronicles, we see that once we get past the genealogies, he very, very quickly deals with the kingdom of Saul, or the reign of Saul by describing his death. And then immediately gets into focusing and emphasizing on King David. We see also that in the account of King David, some of the stories that we know quite well from 2 Samuel are absent in Chronicles. They're simply not recorded for us. So what is maybe one of the, the, the larger things that's going on here? Well, as far as we can tell, when we're looking at the account of David and Samuel, Samuel is actually part of a longer history. Joshua to 2 Kings without Ruth is a continuous history possibly by a single human author, probably by more than one, but it's a pretty continuous history. So Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. And one of the main purposes that history was written was to make sure the people of God understood that the captivity, 
the exile, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple was not a failure on God's part. You know, 2 Kings ends with the people of God in captivity. And so, of course, they would have been asking the question, you know, how did we get here? How did, how did this happen? You know, didn't God make promises that he would choose a place for his name to dwell? When Solomon dedicated the temple, didn't, didn't we believe that that would his, be his inhabitation on earth forever? So how did we get here? How did we get to this place of exile? How did we get to captivity? How did God allow his city, Jerusalem, and his house, the temple, to be destroyed? Well, a, a huge emphasis of the history of Joshua to 2 Kings is the sin of the people. And that, in fact, it was because of Israel's constant, repeated sin and failures that eventually God had no choice but to hand them over to judgment. So when we are looking at those stories from Joshua to 2 Kings, a strong emphasis is it was, in fact, the sin of the people and the failure of the nation to keep their end of the covenant to keep their end of what God asked and expected of them, that's how they ended up in captivity. It was not a failure on God's part. It was not because God was weak or unable or forgetful or anything else. It was simply because the people had repeatedly fallen short. And the captivity was, in fact, a just judgment by a holy God. So now when we get to Chronicles, the chronicler is telling the same stories. He mentions Saul, goes into great detail with David, then on to Solomon once we get to 2 Chronicles. But he's looking at history with a little bit different emphasis. And it seems to be that one of the things that the chronicler is emphasizing is that the history of Israel isn't just an explanation for why they ended up in captivity. Of course, we know that's true because that's the history in Joshua to 2 Kings, but it seems like what the chronicler is inviting us to do is to look at the history of Israel and from the history of Israel have great hope for the future. Look at the history of Israel, but look at it specifically as a source of incredible hope for the future. And so a lot of the things that are included in the earlier history of Israel are not included in the chronicler's history. Again, because he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit. This isn't human wisdom. This isn't human thought. The Holy Spirit is, is inspiring him to be incredibly selective in what he includes and very intentional on what he wants us as the readers of this history to grab hold of. So why is Saul barely mentioned at all? Really only as sort of the segue into David. We're told about his death and the death of his sons in 1 Chronicles 10, and that's about it. Well, because in terms of looking for hope for the future, Saul is not a great source for that. Now, if you want to talk about how and why Israel ended up in captivity, Saul certainly is a great example of how kings continued to fail. But if you're looking at the history of Israel for hope for the future, you don't really want to emphasize Saul because there is not a lot of hope for the future of Israel in the kingship of Saul because a greater king was coming, a better king was coming from a different tribe, from a different house, from a different line. And of course, that is David. Even as we look at the reign of King David in Chronicles, some of the things that we understand from Samuel are completely ignored. So for example, as we're reading the beginning of the kingship in 2 Samuel, for those of you who are participating in the Wednesday study when we were working our way through 2 Samuel, you may recall there was a rival king, Ishbosheth, who reigned quite a few years. He was from the line of Saul, and most of Israel was following Ishbosheth. And for a while, David was only king over Judah. And it took a number of years, actually, before all Israel ultimately assented to having David as their king. 2 Samuel actually goes into fairly great detail in describing that period of time 
where David was slowly, by the favor of the Lord and by the work of the Lord, garnering more and more support from the nation for himself. As the varying tribes recognized, hey, David really is the Lord's anointed. He really is the one not just to be king of Judah, but to be king over all Israel. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Chronicles chapter 11. 1 Chronicles chapter 11. Just so you know, we're not going to have one like central text today. We're just going to kind of look at a couple different things. So 1 Chronicles chapter 11, we're just going to look at verses 1 to 3. 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. It says, All Israel came together to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, even while Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord your God said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, he made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel, as the Lord had promised through Samuel. So that is the beginning of David's reign as king over all Israel. And completely absent in the chronicler's history is those years of struggle, is that rival king Ishbosheth with Abner, the commander of Saul's army, supporting him. Why? Because again, as we see the struggle that David had initially to establish his throne, that wouldn't necessarily be an aspect of Israel's history that would give incredible hope for the future. But where they eventually ended up, which is all of the nation recognizing that David was in fact the Lord's anointed, and those who had supported Ishbosheth and those who had supported the house of Saul were actually in mistake and out of step with what the Lord was doing, that wouldn't necessarily generate a lot of hope for the future. So again, the chronicler is being incredibly selective, and intentionally so, because the chronicler was certainly writing at a time when the captivity either was still going on or was still very, very fresh in the mind of his audience. And he realized that from the other account of the history of Israel, they were well of the fact that it was their sin and it was their failure that had brought them into captivity. So at least part of what the chronicler is trying to do is give an exilic or a post-exilic people hope for the future. We know our kings failed. We know as a people we failed. We know that we sinned. We know that we have fallen short. We know that God cast us out of the land and sent us into captivity for all these many decades. We are absolutely aware of that. But now the question is, is God done with us? Did we go too far? Did we cross a line where God says now no longer Will I keep my end of the covenant because you were unwilling and incapable of keeping yours? Are we truly a people now that have no hope for the future? When we look back to the promises to David, when we look to the line of David, when we look to the line of Abraham, did we go so far that God is done with us? And what the chronicler is doing in presenting his history of Israel to us is answering that question by saying no. God is not done with you. You were faithless, but he is faithful. And even in the midst of sin and failure and falling short, God continued to be faithful. And even in that sin-stained history, that is the history of Israel and then Israel and Judah, even in that sin-stained history, there are glimpses of something better that is going to come. There are glimpses of a sure-founded hope based not on human will and decision, but based on the goodness and faithfulness and covenant promise-keeping God of Israel. So that's what the chronicler is doing. He's not being disingenuine. He's not being fake. He's not being inaccurate. You know, all of the critical accusations that are leveled against him, he is absolutely intentionally 
focusing and emphasizing on the aspects of Israel's history that give an incredibly solid foundation of hope for the future. That's what he's doing. So really, as we're reading the names of Chronicles, we should be incredibly excited. Not bored and not disinterested and not wishing that God had made the Bible 65 books instead of 66 books, but absolutely excited because hopefully through the help of the Holy Spirit, what we are beginning to understand is that even though Israel's history is full of failure, there is a redemptive thread of hope. And God was never ever completely done with his people, even though that's what they deserved, even though that's what we deserve. God is never completely done with his people. It's one of the major themes of Chronicles. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Chronicles chapter 20. 1 Chronicles chapter 20. And as we read the opening verses of 1 Chronicles chapter 20, I want you to think hard, if you can, of 2 Samuel. Okay? Think hard of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11, we won't turn there, but I want you to think hard of 2 Samuel as we read 1 Chronicles. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, this is 1 Chronicles 20. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, Joab led out the armed forces. He laid waste to the land of the Ammonites and went to Rabbah and besieged it. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, what do we think is going to come next? It's spring. It's the time when kings go out to war. And Joab is out fighting the battles of Israel. And David has remained home in Jerusalem. What are we expecting to come next? The account with Bathsheba. Because David was not where he was supposed to be. As a king, he was not on the field of battle. He was mistakenly and sinfully staying home. That's when he's up on that roof that one night and looks down and sees Bathsheba. The chronicler completely, completely skips that. Now, does he think we don't know that? Well, I'm sure he's hoping we do know that. I'm sure he's hoping that whatever his original audience and all subsequent audiences were, were well aware of what happens next in the account of 2 Samuel. But he completely skips that. Why? Because he doesn't want to focus on the aspects of Israel's history that highlight human sin and human failure and human shortcomings. He's not saying that's not there. He well knows it's there. Of course it's there. What he is doing is very, very intentionally selecting that thread of redemptive history that was present in the accounts of Israel. That's what he's doing. He's giving a discouraged, dejected, downtrodden people incredible hope from their history. That's what he's doing. So second chronic, excuse me, first chronicles chapter 20, there's not a single mention of the events with Bathsheba, and then the murder of Uriah, and the death of the first son that Bathsheba bore to David. There's none of that. There's none of that. Again, the chronicler is not pretending that didn't happen. He's not trying to deceive his audience. He is certainly well aware that those events happened. Most readers, if not all readers of Chronicles, are going to be well aware that those events happen. But that's not where we find hope for the future. In David's failures, in David's adultery, in David's murder, we don't find hope for the future. We find that constant theme of human sinfulness. So what the chronicler is doing with history is a little bit different. We may recall a huge aspect of the account of David in 2 Samuel is the rebellion of Absalom and David's exile and the time that he spent away from Jerusalem and away from the throne, the rebellion of Absalom. In 1 Chronicles, 
not a hint of it is mentioned. Why? Because there was no promise of God that was going to be fulfilled by Absalom taking the throne. There was no hope for the future of the people of God in that rebellious, wicked son sinfully taking what did not belong to him. Is that a part of Israel's history? Yes, absolutely, it is. But is that a part of Israel's history from which they can find hope for the future? No, it is not. So the chronicler doesn't even mention it. Doesn't even mention it. One last example of this, as we get to the end of 2 Samuel and the beginning of 1 Kings, David is very frail, and he's very weak. In fact, he's even incapable of keeping himself warm. And so a woman has to be asked to keep him warm because he can't keep himself warm. And as his life is ebbing away and as he's handing over the kingdom to Solomon, we see a very frail, a very weak, a very human king. But when we get to the end of 1 Chronicles, which we will in about a week, there's not a hint of that. David is speaking with authority. David is in complete control. David seems to die without in any way showing hints of human frailty or weakness. Again, because in the frailty of David is not the hope for Israel's future. But in David being the anointed of the Lord, in the promise to David that he would have a son to sit on his throne forever, and the first step in that promise being fulfilled is Solomon. That's where the hope of Israel lies. Not in human frailty, not in human weakness, not in human sinfulness, but in the incredible ability of God to work redemptively in spite of those things. So the chronicler's history is incredibly intentional. He is including what helps him get across to the audience what the Spirit has inspired him to do, which is to say, yes, of course, our sin has brought us into captivity. Yes, of course, our kings failed us and let us down as a nation. But in spite of all of that, God was still at work. God was still redeeming. God was still working. And ultimately, the promises of God, the grace of God, the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God is greater than all of the sins of humanity greater than the sins of Israel, greater than the sins of the kings of Israel, greater than all of our national failures that are etched in our history, greater still is the redemption of God. Greater still is his faithfulness. Greater still is his ability, in spite of all of that, to bring forth his purposes. And of course, a huge aspect of the hope that the chronicler puts in front of us is that incredible promise of David's greater son. David's greater son. There were glimpses of that in David's kingship. There were glimpses of that in Solomon's kingship. There were glimpses of that in Jehoshaphat's kingship. There were glimpses of that in Hezekiah's kingship. These are kings that the chronicler focuses on and goes into great detail describing, sometimes even more so than what we have in Samuel Kings. Why? Because in these kings there was a strong, strong foreshadowing of the greater king that would come from the line of David. And so we see that in the history of Israel, there was incredible promise and hope for the future. One other thing just to mention quickly is the chronicler's emphasis on worship. You know, when we get to this list of names, the second list of names that begins in chapter 23 and runs through verse 26, the vast majority of it is how David arranged the Levites and the priests. You know, David realized he was not going to build a temple for the Lord. But he realized as well that he could do everything that he possibly could to prepare for Solomon to do that and still to have vibrant, dynamic worship in Israel. So as these long lists of names of Levites and priests are given, it's David organizing corporate worship. 
Because the chronicler is absolutely reminding the people of God how important corporate worship is. And so, so much of the account of David in 1 Chronicles is him preparing for Solomon to build the temple, amassing all of the wealth, even giving him designs and plans for it, not mentioned at all in Kings. Because the chronicler is focusing on how absolutely vitally significant for the life of the nation corporate worship is. And of course, in the Old Testament, the center of corporate worship was first the tabernacle and the ark, but then later the temple. And so if you are a worshiper, you should love First and Second Chronicles. Because it is reminding us of how absolutely essential corporate worship is for the people of God. And we see David's heart for that. We see Solomon's heart for that. We see Jehoshaphat's heart for that. We see Hezekiah's heart for that. An incredible desire to see the people of God coming together to worship God. Because that's such an incredibly vital part of the life of us as a community of believers. Well, a couple minutes. I'm not going to take too long with this. But as we are kind of looking at some of the differences between Chronicles and Samuel, hopefully we kind of got the broad stroke. Samuel and that extended history is kind of giving the reason for the captivity and the exile. Chronicles looking at that same history, giving us hope for the future. So I would encourage you, if you haven't already, as we are reading through Chronicles, I would encourage you to read through Samuel, and then eventually a lot of the material in 2 Chronicles is similar to First and Second Kings. Kind of look at both of those together, compare them, just as you would say read an account in Matthew and then find the parallel account in Mark or Luke. But one actually proves itself to be incredibly challenging. And I thought it might be fun just as we close our time together today, at least to begin to consider an account in Chronicles that has a parallel in Samuel, but the way the chronicler casts it, at least initially, is incredibly different than the way it's cast in Samuel. So today's reading, we're actually reading 1 Chronicles 21. 1 Chronicles 21, many of us know this story as the sinful census of David. The sinful census of David. This is one of the few things included in the account of David in Chronicles where David falls short and shows his sinfulness. But of course, there's no way the chronicler could leave this story out. Why? Because the end of this account explains why the temple was built where it was built. Of course, we won't get that far today because we're really only going to look at the first verse. So looking at 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. This is one of the few times that this individual known as Satan or the Satan is mentioned on the pages of the Old Testament. The word Satan is simply a Hebrew word initially, which means to accuse or condemn or to be an adversary or an opponent. In the account of Solomon in 1 Kings, once his heart becomes wayward, God raises up adversaries and opponents, Jeroboam and other individuals who start taking the kingdom from him. Those are referred to as Satans or Satans. So initially, the word Satan had a very normal sort of regular usage to be an opponent, to be an enemy, to be an adversary, to accuse or come against. But we also see on occasion that it is a designation that is given specifically to an inhabitant of the spiritual realm. We may think of the beginning of the book of Job, where the Satan comes from having roamed all about the earth and is reporting to the Lord. Well, here again, it's certainly not a human opponent that the chronicler is referring to. It's this individual inhabiting the spiritual realm whose very designation is one who opposes or attacks or who confronts. So it says, the Satan, or Satan, rose up against Israel, and he incited David to take a census of Israel. So now let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 24, the account in that history of the same sinful census. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. 
It says, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Well, obviously, you see there's a little bit different casting of the event in Samuel and in Chronicles. The chronicler says that it was Satan who stood up and incited David to take the census. Samuel tells us that, in fact, the Lord's anger was burning against Israel, and he incited David to take the sinful census. Now, this is definitely one of the more challenging and, and difficult issues of comparing the history of Chronicles with the history found in Joshua to Kings. And I'm not sure I'm going to be able to give a complete answer to it, but since we were kind of looking at the intention of the chronicler and some of the ways he cast things a little differently for his theological emphasis, I thought it might be at least beneficial to begin to try to unpack this. But it's not often in scripture that we have one account of an event where God is given the credit for it, and in a parallel account of the event, we have Satan being given credit for it. So this certainly becomes very, very challenging. One of the first things that we probably need to ask ourselves is, well, why was taking a census sinful? You know, even Joab, who is certainly kind of a man of the world, you know, protests when David says, Joab, go count all of the, the fighting men. And Joab says, you know, may the Lord multiply your armies, but, but David, don't do this evil thing. So even Joab, who is not always really spiritually in step with what God was doing, even he understood that this was wrong. The problem is there's nothing obvious in this account that makes it clear why this was wrong. In fact, in Exodus chapter 30, God says, look, when you take a census, when you count the people, here is how you are to do it. So God certainly expected and anticipated that the nation of Israel was going to be counted from time to time. So the end of the day is we are absolutely left wondering what it was that made this census so incredibly sinful to the point that 70,000 Israelites lost their lives as a result of this sinful census. But what we do know is that it was wrong. It was wrong. Well, how do we begin now to try to unpack the fact that Samuel says it was the Lord that incited David to take this census, and in Chronicles, it was Satan who incited David to take this census. Well, one of the first things I think that we absolutely have to make unmistakably clear that God is absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. Holy and righteous and just in everything that he does, in everything that he decrees. There is never, ever, ever, ever any opportunity for us to question that. Whatever we understand about God, whatever we don't understand about God, However we try to make sense of these two verses, however we end up not understanding these two verses, the one thing that cannot even remotely be questioned is the character of God. God is always holy. God is always just. God is always righteous. God is always perfect in everything he does. We can never question that. We can certainly say, God, I don't understand. We can certainly say, God, this doesn't seem to make sense to me. We can certainly throw up our arms at times and say, I think this maybe is beyond me. But we can never ultimately question the character of God. Now, one of the details that Samuel includes for us is that God was exceedingly angry at Israel. Now, it doesn't say why. But I think it's pretty obvious that there's one thing more than anything else that angers God. And that is sin. So if God is exceedingly angry at Israel, it certainly more than likely is because of their sinfulness. So there, right there, we see the holiness, the justice, the righteousness of God being implied in that verse. If God is angry, he has every reason to be angry. If God is angry, it certainly is because of evil, probably the presence of sin in his people. Now, if God is angry and rightly angry, is God just in punishing sinful people? Absolutely. He absolutely is. We can never question that. 
We can never question that. Sometimes the grace of God is so incredible, and sometimes we emphasize the grace of God, which we should, we forget that the foundation of grace is actually the anger of God. The foundation of grace is actually the fact that we are deserving of God's punishment, and that we, without grace, would face an angry God with our own righteousness and be hopelessly lost. So the anger of God directed at evil and sinfulness and wickedness is actually an incredibly comforting aspect of God's character. So whatever it was that Israel had done, God was justly and rightly angry at them. And God had every right as a holy God to punish them. Now, where does Satan come into this? Well, I think part of what we need to understand is that because God is perfect and righteous and holy in everything he does, whatever means he chooses to use to accomplish his purposes is ultimately good. Whatever means he chooses to use to accomplish his purposes is ultimately good. And if he chooses to use a creature that is evil and in rebellion against him, and trying to destroy his image in the world that he created, if God chooses to use that creature to accomplish his purposes, God is certainly more than able and free to do that. So I think the way that we at least begin to understand this is Samuel is simply saying, along with all of Scripture, that God ultimately stands behind the course of human events. He is sovereign. He is sovereign over his creation. There is nothing that escapes his notice. There is nothing that escapes his will. There is nothing that escapes his power. What the chronicler is adding is that in this case, God used an evil, wicked creature in rebellion to help him, God, accomplish his just and righteous purposes. You know, that's one of the most incredible attributes of the God that we serve. That he is able to take the plans and the schemes of his worst enemy and use them to bring about his good purposes. And the truth of it is, we all know that. Think of the cross, the perfect plan of the Father to have his son go to a cross to die for us and rise that we might live. Well, as that incredible eternal plan of the Father and the Son and the Spirit unfolded in human history, who was one of the participants in that? Judas Iscariot. And who entered Judas Iscariot before he betrayed Jesus? Satan. So one of the most incredible aspects of the God that we serve is the enemy at his absolute conniving, vilest, wickedest self. The absolute worst that he can do is ultimately nothing in opposition to the God of the heavens and the earth. Our God can take the worst plans of the enemy and turn them around to accomplish his purposes. Satan can't win. You know, that's why in Psalm 2 it says, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed one? Let us throw off his fetters. Let us throw off his chains. How does the God of heaven and earth respond to that? How does the God of heaven and earth respond to all of the nations and the creation that he made conspiring against him, conspiring against his anointed, who we know, of course, now to be Jesus Christ? According to Psalm 2, how does he, how does he respond to that? He laughs. He laughs. Really, Satan, that's the worst you can do? I mean, you, you really think you're going to undermine my eternal plan for my creation? You're a creature yourself. Now, granted, I've given you some power, I've given you some authority, and I'm keeping you on a leash for a time. But the day is coming when my son will return, and the lake of fire is your eternal destiny. You can't escape that. You can't avoid that. And you can't stop me from accomplishing 
my purposes. That's the incredible assurance that we have. The scriptures certainly teach us to be aware of Satan. Apostle Paul says we shouldn't be naive or ignorant of his schemes. We need to know his strategies. We need to know how he tries to tempt us, how he tries to incite us, how he tries to get us to stumble or, or mess up. But at the end of the day, our God is infinitely ahead of him. Our God is infinitely more able to accomplish his purposes and utterly destroy and defeat the plans of the enemy. And what greater display of God's infinite wisdom and God's infinite power than to be able to use the worst attacks of his worst enemy to accomplish his own purposes? I don't know anything. One last thing. As David is reflecting on how sinful his decision to take a census was, how does David respond to that? Oh, the devil made me do it. It wasn't my fault. The devil made me do it. Or, you know, God put me in an unfair situation. If God had been more fair, he wouldn't have put me in that situation and I wouldn't have made a sinful decision, right? Over the years or maybe even just this week, haven't we heard that or tried to make that excuse ourselves? Oh, the devil made me do it. Or God put me in an unfair situation, so I, I, what, 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 what would he expect of me? But look at David. In 1 Chronicles 21, verse 8, as David is, is, is coming to his senses and realizing that what he has done is incredibly sinful, how does he respond? Verse 8, it says, Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. This is David at his best. This is the man after God's own heart. This is David taking responsibility for his sin. He's not blaming someone else. He's not saying the devil made me do it. He's not indicting God for putting him in an unfair situation. None of that. None of that. He is taking full ownership and responsibility for his sin. Let's read that again. Incredible words. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant I have done a very foolish thing. I hope as the people of God, whatever we understand is happening in the realm that we can't see, whatever Satan is up to, whatever God is orchestrating, whatever he puts in our way, I hope that at every opportunity he gives us, just like David, we take full responsibility for our sin. We don't blame somebody else. We don't put it at the feet of Satan. We don't indict God saying he put us in an unfair situation, but we say, you know what, God? This is on me. It's my fault. Because when we do that, he is delighted to forgive us. He is delighted to take our sin away. He is delighted to replace it with the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. When we stop making excuses, when we stop pointing the finger, when we stop looking at someone else to blame, when we simply say, Lord, it is me, it is I, I have sinned. When we do that, the very next thing that happens is the grace of Jesus Christ floods into our lives. And we are forgiven, and we are restored, and we are washed as if we had never sinned. So whatever is going on in the realm that we don't see, Satan inciting David, the Lord inciting David, however we understand that, one thing that we can unmistakably take from this is that in any decision we make, we must hold ourselves responsible. And when we mess up, there is grace. There is grace. 
greater than any sin we've ever committed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do just want to thank you so much for giving us this time together to study and look at your word. We thank you so much that you inspired the chronicler, whoever he is, whoever he was. Thank you for inspiring him to give us this account of Israel's history. And thank you, Lord, for the incredible hope that is embedded in the history of your people and now has become our people. Even though it is fraught with sin and failure and shortcoming, you were always at work. You were always good. You were always faithful. And you were always giving glimpses of the greater son of David who would come. And Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much that you have come, that you are the perfect king, that you are ruling over your kingdom and ruling over all of creation. And one day the kingdom of this world will become your kingdom, O God, and of your Christ as well. And thank you, Lord God, for allowing us to have this amazing hope for the future as well. Uh, an individual hope for the place that you have gone to prepare for us. A corporate hope that you will ultimately provide a place for all of your people. And finally, Father, I pray that as your people, we would not get sucked into just the demonic, demonic aspect of this culture that is always looking to make excuses, that is always looking to deflect guilt, that is always looking to blame someone else, that is always looking to point the finger in hopes that we won't come under the spotlight ourselves. Because God, that is just wretched. It is wretched. As your people made in your image, you want us to take responsibility. You want us to own the decisions that we make regardless of the circumstances in which those decisions are made. And so help us, Lord. Help us as your people to take responsibility. Lord, not that then we come under guilt and condemnation, but in taking responsibility, that is where true freedom lies. That is the release of guilt. That is the release of condemnation, the release of shame. Because when we take responsibility, Jesus, you are delighted to forgive us. You are delighted to once again wash us clean. And so may we understand, Lord, that in taking responsibility, in you we find true freedom. In you we find forgiveness. In you we find an end of guilt and condemnation. Help us as your people to walk in these things. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen.